available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Uh, hello from me, Nigel Hewin. And the, this recording is being done on Wednesday, the 15th of uh, March. I did say, I think the last time I was on, it was November. That was a mistake. I, re- I re- rectified here and now. It is the 15th of March, I assure you. And in this program, uh, we'll be looking at the Daimler building, the architectural significance of that. Uh, we'll also be talking about March with Stella. King Charles, of course, will be crowned shortly, but also we're looking at what's going to happen to our particularly stamps with his uh, image appearing on that in the near future. And we look at some of the favourites of our older listeners, not myself included, just William. Uh, And we've got a two-part story there about why he's still amusing us a hundred years later. And I guess many of you will remember the Black Prince pub in Alsley Old Road. Well, uh, Keith talks about that and its demise and now partially rubbled. Uh, and uh, finally, we're going to end the programme uh, with a, a blind photographer, or visually impaired photographer, I should say. But before all that, of course, we have got sport, report from the centre, and of course your post bag. Um, but we're going to start with this week's news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. An eagerly awaited council meeting to look into the finances of the failed City of Culture Trust ended after less than half an hour with no answers for the public. Councillors voted by five to three to delay last Thursday's meeting to a later date after it became clear no one with any responsibility would be answering questions. But the move left members of the public in the meeting's gallery furious. The meeting of the Council's scrutiny board was set up to look into concerns over the City of Culture Trust, the charity responsible for the City's Year of Culture and its legacy. The Trust went into administration last month, despite getting millions in funding, and now owes the City Council £1.6 million, including money from a £1 million loan agreed only last October. Before the Trust went into administration, Councillor Ed Ruane, backed by others on the board, called for an urgent meeting to consider the charity's financial position and the risk to public finances. But at the meeting yesterday afternoon, none of the former officers from the Trust, who were invited by the Chair, turned up to answer questions. Members of the board were also told at a pre-meeting that senior council officers, including the acting CEOs, would not be answering questions on the grounds that this would be outside the meeting's limits. Cabinet members Councillor Richard Brown and Councillor David Welsh did attend and planned on giving statements at the meeting providing more information around the one million loan given in October. But their plans were scuppered as about five minutes after the public meeting started, Labour councillors called for the session to be adjourned to March the 29th to avoid going round in circles. Councillor John McNicholas led calls and said wording of the meeting's notice needed to be fixed so the relevant people could be called in to answer. Councillor Ed Ruane, who seconded the motion, said 
We want as much accountability, questions and answers as anybody else. If those people here today aren't able to answer those questions for whatever reason, then we're just going to go round in circles. Coventry Conservatives leader Councillor Gary Ridley condemned the move as a total lack of transparency from the council and its Labour administration. Bus users face weeks of disruption as bus drivers are set to strike in Coventry. National Express confirmed that only three services will be running from this Thursday, March the 16th. National Express runs 93% of services in the West Midlands, meaning strikes will cause huge disruption to commuters in the city. Almost the entire bus network will grind to a halt in a matter of days. Over 3,000 bus drivers will be striking in a, better, in a bitter dispute over pay. It's unclear how long strike action will last, but Unite leaders promise, promise disruption every day until the dispute is resolved. A limited hospital route network will run from tomorrow, Thursday, March the 16th, to Sunday, March the 19th. Passengers will be able to take the 9, 17 and 20A services to and from University Hospital Coventry. These are, of course, the 9, Green Lane to University Hospital via Coventry, 17, Fenside to University Hospital via Coventry again, and the 20A, Coventry to University Hospital via Fosal Road and Bell Green. National Express says they have offered bus drivers a pay rise of 13.4%, made up of 11.1% on the base rate, backdated to January 2023, and a one-off payment of £630. Under this deal, around 75% of drivers will earn more than £31,000 a year, the company said. Unite has accused National Express of sitting on mountains of cash and called on the bus company to give a pay rise to its staff that reflects rocketing living costs. Some drivers, they claim, only £11.80 per hour, the union, claimed by the union. Unite Regional Officer Solinda Singh said National Express greed is the reasons why the entire West Midlands bus network will be shut down and it bears a responsibility for the disruption that will be caused. Our members do not want to strike but National Express has left them with no choice. The company needs to put forward an offer that our members can accept and it clearly can afford to do so. New, new traffic restrictions are set to be introduced on the city's Trinity Street Loop and High Street. The decision has been made by the City Council with the changes set to be introduced on April the 24th. The Council said the changes will result in having more pedestrian-friendly spaces with fewer vehicles. Bus gates will be used to control traffic creating accessible areas for buses, cycles, taxis or private hire vehicles. There will be a bus gate covering the Burgess, Trinity Street, Hales Street and Palmer Lane, while another gate will be introduced at the junction of Little Park Street and Salt Lane. This will aim to reduce traffic at High Street and Little Park Street from the Salt Lane Junction, as well as Greyfriars Lane between Salt Lane and High Street. A short section of road between Much Park Street and Bailey Lane will also become two-way, allowing access to Bailey Street and St Mary's Street.
Between midnight and 10 a.m. each day, road users will be able to access the area as they do now, without restrictions, but some will have to apply for a permit to access the areas outside of these hours. Parking arrangements within the area will also stay the same. The Council's Cabinet Member for Services, Councillor Patricia Heatherton, said, We know that there is a lot of unnecessary traffic in and around the city centre, which can make it tricky for pedestrians, especially those with mobility issues, to navigate and enjoy. We expect these changes to improve air quality in the city centre and make it a safer and more enjoyable place for local people and visitors. The changes will be made under an experimental traffic regulation order, which means the changes can be in place for up to 18 months. During that time, the Council will monitor traffic and pedestrian flows and listen to local views before deciding if the changes should become permanent. A drop-in session will be held soon for Coventrians living in affected areas to ask questions. Coventry City Council spent over a million pounds helping people on benefits with their housing costs last year, but the amount has fallen. The Council spent a total of £1.3 million in discretionary housing payments in the year to March 2022, data from the Department of Work and Pensions has revealed. These payments are top-ups given out by councils to help people on benefits experiencing financial difficulty with housing costs, with the aim of preventing an increase in homelessness. They may go towards paying rent where housing benefits or universal credit do not cover the full amount, or to cover the cost of other necessary housing expenses such as rent deposits. Coventry's £1.3 million pounds is more in the is more in these payments than the majority of local authorities in England and Wales, with Birmingham spending the most, 3.8 million. The amount Coventry spent last year is actually down compared with 2021, when 1.4 million was spent. Benefit reforms are no longer the main reason that people are awarded DHPs in Coventry, with only 39% of cases relating to the issue. Just over a fifth, that's 19% in fact, of uh, DHPs are paid out to people who are struggling with the benefit cap. Local housing allowance reforms account for 10% of claims, the removal of the spare room subsidy, the so-called bedroom tax, accounting for another 10%. That leaves 61% of DHPs which are awarded for non-welfare related issues. Central government allocates money to councils to help cover the cost of these payments. However, in many cases, it falls short of what actually gets paid out. Coventry was allocated £1 million from central government. Gigafactories building batteries for electric cars are needed more than ever in the UK, and government funding could help make this a reality in Coventry, Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Business has said. Jonathan Reynolds MP toured a research facility at Warwick University yesterday along with MPs Ed Miliband and Louise Haig to see state-of-the-art developments on electric transport. The trio's visit was timed to coincide with a pledge by Labour to commit, to commit £2 billion of public money to help companies build eight battery factories across the UK. Mr Reynolds spoke to the local democracy reporting service before a presentation to him and other MPs by senior councillors at Coventry City Council. 
He explained why the pledge to help fund gigafactories is so important and could make the difference in areas of the UK such as Coventry, where plans appear to have stalled. Planning permission for a gigafactory in Coventry was in January last year and the project got another 500k from the council to help market it to investors. The project has been billed as vital for Coventry and the wider region as it could bring in billions of investment and create thousands of jobs. But negotiations for an investor are still underway and last week it was reported that Jaguar Land Rover's owners are considering building a battery factory in Somerset or Spain. Mr Reynolds said, The battery is so much of the value of an electric vehicle. First of all, unless you are building the batteries in the UK over time, it's very unlikely the rest of the production will be here as well. Specifically, around the Brexit deal and the trading corporation agreement the government signed, the value of the battery is such a significant percentage of the vehicle overall that unless the battery is made in the UK, they wouldn't qualify under the Rules of Origin Agreement to be UK-produced vehicles. But what will be essential in Coventry is to have a customer for the product if the Gigafactory goes ahead. And so at the minute, what I think is missing is a clear offer from government to be a partner for this site. But I would say that if we list the favourability of certain sites in the UK, Coventry is certainly up there. Coventry MP Zara Sultana has praised Amazon's pioneering workers as they continue strike action this week. More than 310 staff members at the Coventry Depot will strike all week, according to the GMB union, as they continue to push for better pay. Amazon workers in Coventry are making history, Ms Sultana, the Labour MP for Coventry South, said. They are the first workers in the company uh, to go on strike in the UK. They are standing up to one of the biggest, richest and most powerful companies in the world. GMB members took to the picket lines on Monday and were were again on Friday this week following similar actions on March the 9th and in February. The union is causing to raise, calling to raise their pay from £10.50 per hour to £15 an hour. Amazon said that a fraction of its Coventry workforce are taking part in the strikes. An Amazon spokesman said, a tiny proportion of our workforce is involved. In fact, according to the verified figures, only a fraction of 1% of our UK employees voted in the ballot and that includes those who voted against industrial action. The statement continued, We appreciate the great work our teams do throughout the year, and we're proud to offer competitive pay, which starts at a minimum of between £10.50 and £11.45 an hour, depending on location. This represents a 29% increase in the minimum hourly wage paid to the Amazon employees since 2018. Employers are also offering comprehensive benefits that that are worth thousands more, including private medical insurance, life insurance, subsidised meals and an employee discount, to name but a few. An animal-loving Coventry woman has set up her own pet food bank at the back of a charity shop. Melinda Anthony says there is a real need for such facilities in the community. 
Melinda's love of pets has always been there, but it really came to the fore in 2014 when she started a cat rescue. She was a member of a community page when she got a call from a distressed couple struggling to feed their pets. The 50-year-old then put out a call on the page for pet food to help the couple so that they didn't have to rehome them. I knew I had to help these people, she said. It's not the animal's fault, and I never want to see any animals torn away from their owners. Just over a year ago, she had an idea to contact trustees of the Betty Ennis Charity Foundation in Woolenhall, asking if she could set up a pet food bank there. After she told the charity how she had worked with animals all her life, and was a great animal lover, they agreed to give Melinda a space. The pet food bank is a small room full of dog and cat food. Cats Protection Coventry and the RSPCA all got involved to help with the setup. Melinda suffers from mental health and says her dog is her lifeline, especially as the cost of living crisis shows no immediate sign of ending. People are struggling to cope, she said. I understand how animals have such a big impact on our daily lives and coping strategies. It just breaks my heart to think that people are having to rehome their animals because they can't make ends meet. When people go to the food bank, Melinda asks a few general questions around the recipient's financial situation to ensure they really do require the service and are not attempting to exploit it. A system is set in place where she knows every customer that comes in and she gives them advice about the different types of pet food that is best for their animal. Belinda always grew up with animals and knew it was her passion. She left school, went to work in a vet's and then a pet shop and says it's always been ingrained in her. She says there were no other pet food banks in the city before she started and there is a real need for them in the community. A well-known pub in Coventry is up for sale just months after it was taken over by new management. The Oak Inn, along Gosford Street, underwent major refurbishment last year when it was taken over by a new management team. It was hoped the pub would be given a new lease of life with new ownership after the pub had become a hot spot for trouble and violence. The pub was known to stay open later than most drinking establishments in the city centre, welcoming punters until, would you believe, 6am on weekends. Officers were called to the pub many times, and West Midlands police even demanded the landlord's licence be revoked. Coventry City Council agreed, and the pub's licence was withdrawn in November 2021. It wasn't closed for long, though, with business partners Narinda and Nirana, experienced in the pub trade, taking over the place. They implemented new rules to deter violence, closed earlier on weekends, and were said to have imposed stricter door policies with security guards. They also added a menu consisting of Asian cuisine, but less than a year later, the pub had been placed back on the market. The Oak Inn is one of 15 Marston's pubs up for grabs in the West Midlands. The Wolverhampton Pub Group now has 61 of its pubs up for sale across the country. A special Dippy the Dinosaur Trail is set to take place around Coventry City Centre later this month. It is being held to mark National Lottery Week 
and will include venues that have benefited from lottery cash, including The Wave, Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, Coventry Cathedral, St Mary's Guildhall and Coventry Transport Museum. The 26-metre-long dinosaur skeleton began a three-year residency at the city's Herbert Art Gallery and Museum on February the 20th and has attracted thousands of visitors so far. Dippymania has also seen a running group map of a unique diner-shaped route around Coventry to honour the special visitor. Now, a special Dippy theme trail will be held on the weekends of the 18th and 19th of March and the 25th and 26th of March. Visitors can explore the city centre while searching for 10 mini Dippies hidden in the participating venues. The trail is free, but participants must provide proof of purchase of a national lottery ticket. Special Dippy maps can be picked up at any of the participating venues during the event. And the venues will also be offering special offers including discounted admission fees. Councillor David Welsh urged residents of all ages to check out the special trail. We are thrilled to celebrate National Lottery Week by launching the Dippy Trail around Coventry City Centre. We hope this event will encourage people to explore Coventry's vibrant culture and learn more about the incredible venues that benefit from National Lottery funding, along with enjoying the Dippy theme. It's free to enjoy this trail and to visit Dippy the Dinosaur itself, so residents and visitors really can make a fun-packed day out of this. Kath Helian, CV Life Operations Manager, added, the Dippy Trail looks like fantastic fun for all ages and it really is a great way to welcome this world-class exhibition to our city. The trail includes some truly iconic commentary buildings so it's superb to have three CB Life venues included. An, an historic portrait plaque has been removed from Coventry Cathedral ruins due to prolonged exposure to weather. A marble carving of Eliza Samwell started to crack so badly that it needed to be removed from display. Another portrait of Dame Mary Bridgman, which remains in the Dyer's Chapel, has also started to show signs of wear. Some of the larger pieces of stone have been placed into storage. The two marble carved portraits were created to honour Eliza Samwell and Mary Bridgman. Mrs. Samwell was believed to have ordered the monument as a remembrance of their great and long friendship. It was originally described as a beautiful marble art monument. Eliza Samwell died in 1724, aged 77, and Dame Mary, the wife of Sir Orlando Bridgman, died in 1701, aged 50. A spokesman for Coventry Cathedral said, Sadly, the medallion's portraits of Dame Mary Bridgman and Mrs. Eliza Samwell in the Dyer's Chapel in the ruins have started to show signs of damage, probably caused by prolonged exposure to weather conditions that they were never intended to be exposed to. The portrait of Mrs. Eliza Samwell was cracked so badly that if we did not remove it, it would certainly fall down and be destroyed. Our maintenance team have retrieved some of the larger pieces of stone and stored them away safely. 
working with a specialist conservation team, the medallion portrait of Mrs. Mrs. Eliza Samwell has been carefully removed and stored safely to prevent any further damage. The City Council is set to discuss plans to take back the ownership and management of the Lower Precinct and Coventry Market. The authority, which already owns the freehold of the site, is currently in discussions with Royal London Asset Management about taking back the current long-term lease. A report proposing the Council enters into an agreement with Royal London will be discussed at Cabinet next week. Councillors will consider either taking over the whole lease for both the lower precinct and the market or a part of the lease covering just the market. After permission is given for an agreement to be entered, due diligence on the two choices will be undertaken and another report will be submitted to the Cabinet with a preferred option for approval. Councillors would then meet again to choose the better option. A council spokesperson said the leases and occupation of the market traders and lower precinct retailers would not be affected, would be unaffected, regardless of which option the authority decided on. Councillor Jim O'Boyle said, City Centre South will be a major step in creating a modern centre, but we also want to make sure we protect our much-loved assets, such as the lower precinct and market. It makes sense for us as a council, so we are in a position to take action when needed and make sure they have a strong and healthy future, just as we are doing with the rest of the city centre and the city as a whole. We know how much these sites are valued by local people and we know the history of them and the way generations have shopped at the market. This action will allow us to protect that history combining the best of the old and the best of the new, as the city centre evolves and moves forward. A brand new Coventry film drama series will soon be released on BBC iPlayer. Phoenix Rise will tell the story of six teenagers who form an unbreakable bond as they navigate the trials and tribulations of school life in the West Midlands. Inspired by TV programme Grange Hill, the ten-part series will show teenagers from working-class backgrounds depicted in a realistic way. Phoenix Rise is a coming-of-age drama that follows the stories of six students who form an unbreakable bond as they navigate the trials and tribulations of school in the Midlands. The six teenagers will take their first tentative steps back into mainstream education after being excluded. At first, it seems they have nothing in common, but they soon realise they all share an indomitable will to succeed. Ostracised by other pupils because of their backgrounds and reputation, these outsiders quickly find out that the only way they will survive school is by sticking together. Unlikely friendships bond them and fuel their determination not to be sidelined. Phoenix Rise was filmed in Coventry. A number of filming locations were used, including Stakeout on Corporation Street and multi-million pound venues Players Entertainment. Filming for the upcoming series started in June last year at former secondary school Woodlands Academy. Crews were also seen filming for the drama at popular restaurant Stakeout. 
A month later, there were a number of filming vans seen outside newly revamped venue Players Entertainment. A large section of nearby Bishop Street car park was closed to the public, with vans of filming equipment and props parked outside the venue on Silver Street. Crews filmed the six teenagers walking to school in Nod Rise. Other filming locations used were Belvedere Road, Keppel Street, Jardine Crescent and the Allen Higgs Centre. Phoenix Rise will be available on BBC iPlayer from next Tuesday, March 21st, and will be shown on Friday, March 24th at 7pm on BBC Three. Plaques have been unveiled in Coventry to honour two-tone music and its origins in the city. Coventry has been given special recognition for being the home of two-tone music, a genre which emerged in the 1970s. The plaques, funded by Coventry City Council, were unveiled at Coventry Railway Station. They marked the former locations of the Rocket Pub and Horizon Studios, which played notable roles in the development of the scene. A plaque used to stand on the rocket, but disappeared years before it was demolished. The name Two-Tone originated from the record label founded by Jerry Dammers of The Specials in 1979, which signed Coventry's The Selector, Madness, The Beat and The Body Snatchers. Many of the bands championed multiculturalism and their music sought to overcome the racial tensions of the 70s and early 80s. Pete Chambers, curator-director at Coventry Music Museum, described Horizon Studios as two-tone central. So many classic two-tone tracks were recorded there, he said. It was a really important studio for Coventry. I remember when it went from 8-track to 16-track. It was a really big thing. The specials, the selector and bad manners were among those to record at Horizon Studios. Mr Chambers said what bands always remembered though was having to lug heavy amplifiers up the stairs because there was no lift. He said the Rocket Pub, just across the road, served as the nearest watering hole, offering bands a chance for a bit of downtime and refreshment during long recording sessions. They often sat there talking different musical ideas and things they were going to do when they got back to the studio, he said. Residents in a Coventry care home have been bringing historic moments to life as part of a Heroes and Heroines event. Evedale Care Home, located on Occupation Road in Binley, is one of the homes across the UK to take part in the project, which saw residents explore the events and people that have built history. The event kicked off with a history-themed afternoon tea party, with residents dressed up as some of their favourite heroes and heroines, such as Queen Victoria and Neil Armstrong, to see what conversations they might have if seated together for tea and cake. More than 100 Four Seasons Healthcare Group care homes are taking part to help share their own knowledge and stories for a fun and engaging trip down memory lane. 84-year-old resident Sylvia Hayes had a great time finding out about the people who have made history. I was Neil Armstrong for an afternoon tea and I told everyone what it was like to be the first person to stand on the moon, she said. 
Another resident, 83-year-old Jane Hope, said, I thought history at school was boring, but this has been so much fun. If my lessons had been like this, I might have paid more attention. Evedale's Magic Moments coordinators have also created memory boxes which include newspaper clippings, photos, poems, historical objects, scents and music from different eras to help spark memories and prompt discussions. Steve Gardner leads the programme for the care home and said the residents and staff have enjoyed getting involved with the project. It's been great sharing their, sharing their expertise and memories to bring history to life in a fun and entertaining way. There have been some wonderful conversations and it's been a great opportunity to reminisce about the past. A popular dance group will be taking to the stage at Godiva Festival in July. Diversity is set to perform at the hugely anticipated festival later this year. Diversity will be performing in front of thousands of fans on Sunday, July the 2nd. Choreographer Ashley Banjo will be leading the troupe as they take to the stage at the War Memorial Park. The dance group shot to fame after appearing on Britain's Got Talent in 2009, being crowned the overall winner ahead of Susan Boyle. Since then, they have had seven sold-out UK dance tours, and even performed at the closing ceremony of the Invictus Games in 2014. Viewers were recently left awestruck after the group performed on Dancing on Ice. Judge Ashley Banjo stepped out from behind the desk and took centre stage as he treated fans to a breathtaking performance alongside Perry Keeley. Other acts which we will be performing at the huge city festival are local band The Enemy, as well as Spice Girl Mel C, who will be headlining on Sunday, July the 2nd. Rudimental will also be heading to the city to perform on Saturday, July the 1st. A spokesman for Godiva Festival said, We are beyond excited to be able to announce that Diversity is joining this year's lineup. The legendary dance crew will be taking to the main stage on Sunday, July the 2nd, Organisers have recently released Tier 3 tickets for £25. Outlook News Well, that completes the, the summary of the local news from Elaine and myself, and now, of course, we're going on to what's been happening at the centre here. Not you this week, it's Joe. Welcome, Joe. Thank you very much indeed. Are you feeling better? I, I am feeling better. Some of you may know I had COVID myself uh, two or so weeks ago, and it knocks me for six whenever it gets me. Yeah. So have you had it before then? I've had it twice now. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I know. I am one <laughs> of those. Habit of it. <laughs> I know it's not an unfortunate habit, isn't it? But I am one of those in a high risk group, so uh, when it ah. gets me, it gets me. Yeah. Well, so. well, well, the first time, do you have a hangover like the OR this time? Because you're feeling, yeah. still feeling tired, aren't the you? First time I had it was back at the end of. It seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? Back at the end of 2020. Yes. When it was still quite uh, young, new, right, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And knocked me out for a week and then 
took me four weeks to recover my energy. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. This time, yeah. I had five days it knocked me out. Yeah, you had all the jabs as well. I've had all the jabs <laughs> and done everything you should. But, but you've recovered and you're still alive and hell. We'll be, we'll be hell and hearty very shortly. I then. will shortly be hell and hearty. Oh, well, I'm just what? feeling slight lingering tiredness, yes, but well, I am much recovered. Thank good. you. So what's happening here? So, well, that is my first point. It's just a little reminder. I'm sure Hugh has been reminding everybody that COVID hasn't gone away and there are still people we come into contact with every day life who are more vulnerable so please continue to be sensible and uh, any symptoms of colds flu fluey things I didn't have much warning of it I just felt suddenly that I had a heavy cold and then it suddenly got a lot worse but so just continue to be careful and uh, if you do feel you've got symptoms um, best to be careful and stay away for a day or two and if you can test for sure do that but just just uh, wait till symptoms subside a bit and um help us all out so best one in the world we can only do so much but let's continue to be a little bit careful um so on to news from the center yes hugh sends his apologies i think he's mentioned we've been very caught up in recent weeks with uh applying for a large chunk of money from the council oh good uh, to support some extra services we'd like to that's going through or has it happened well it hasn't quite finished happening uh there's a few hitches and we're having to have discussions about lots of things so it's taking a lot of his time red tape Uh, yes (laughs) yes to some degree yeah quite a lot of important detailed issues but you're very hopeful i guess we're hopeful but we've got a bit of a few hurdles to overcome so we're, we're have to wait and see but it has been keeping both myself but particularly the Hugh very busy uh-huh. so he has been uh, beavering away in his office if not so available as usual right uh, so we'll let anyone we'll let everybody know when we know where we are with that obviously yep and what are you going to do with if you do get it of course uh, then well, well I can't you, really need, you need detail, right. no secrets yes no to. it's <laughs> a little bit uh, yes, on the quiet at the moment but yep. you know we've always wanted to uh, wherever we can we're looking for opportunities to do more of what we do and uh, reach a wider audience yeah. so it's yeah. very much focused on How many on people that. you got coming regularly here though? Uh, well we have a, I think oh you know you put me on the spot I don't Sorry. think of my <laughs> data no uh, well we have we have at least 100 people coming in and out every week Have you? That's good yeah. news It is good, good news, news isn't yeah. it? Yeah. All of our groups are full yeah. um, We've got two cooking classes each week now as well Yeah. So um, we've got a pretty full programme I think it's about Excellent. 32 hours a week that we're running activities Excellent And um some people come to more than one activity, yes. but many yep. people just come in there for one or two that mm. they're interested in. And obviously, we would love to have more people join us. And not everyone comes every week, either. No, that's right. Yep. Well, exactly. We we respond in between sessions and activities. We mm. have a lot of work going on to, on the phone and by email, meetings of people to support them with whatever individual Good. needs they have. So, yes, um, quite a lot happening. Good. So, we've got some new happenings here. Well, the events that are coming up, I'm sure Hugh has been mentioning these, but just to uh, let everybody know again, if they haven't heard it already, um, the coronation, of course, King Charles... um, I've just about got used to saying that now. I, I know, know it doesn't force come off the tongue as easily, does it? I don't think so. I haven't yeah. sung the anthem yet myself with King, the King. No, nor no, I. So no. maybe that's yeah. what it takes. But <laughs> <laughs> either way, um, Friday the 5th of May, yes. the day before the official coronation and the weekend of celebrations, we're going to hold an afternoon tea here from 2 o'clock. And we'd love just to offer a, a, a bit of a sociable occasion for people to share in the event. 
That will be in, in, in next door, will it? The it lodge. will. We'll yep. be using the big lounge in yep. Austin Lodge next door, I think, now that we've got the kitchen there. You yes. can do that. Good. So that is our plan. Um, so if you haven't already told us you'd like to come to that, please do uh, let us know, either by phone or when you come in next, and we're keeping a list in reception. And obviously we'll be looking at what transport needs yes. there are as well, so do what we can to get people here. So that will just be a bit of fun, I think. Hopefully we'll festoon the room a little yes. bit with appropriate Good. decorations. Red, white and blue. <laughs> uh, so um, the other thing that's coming up, which I'm not sure has been mentioned, but um, on the 1st of April, uh, which is a Saturday. What an appropriate date. Yes, well, we're I hope this is so true. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're actually holding an event, uh, a four-court shop sale which we're calling April Foolishness. Um, so I think you have mentioned it a while back. I don't know if it has recently, because I haven't been here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, that's my COVID yes. cough just going. <laughs> um, yes, so that will be a, a big shop sale. June and her team are getting us ready for that. So they've got some lovely things in the shop now. So we're hoping the weather might be a bit better by then. Yep. Um, you never know, do you? Spread outside a bit. Yeah, we'll have a lot of stalls outside yep. and try yep. and attract people as they go past and... So, if anyone wants to come and join us, or get your family members to come along, that would be lovely. And buy things. Yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. Uh, we do shift quite a lot of stock on days like that, and June does very well to you know, replenish and keep things new, so that's always good. Um, and the other thing you might have noticed, or been told about, is in reception here, we have a, a giant Easter egg, uh, which was donated, and... Um, we're using it to run a raffle, giant Easter egg raffle. Good. So uh, if you'd like to join in with that, it's £1 to go. Uh, so just talk to whoever's in reception and they can add your name and uh, we'll what, raffle when, it off. When's the draw? Yes, I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, right. I should do, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't look that up before I thought it's, about we've that. We've got some wild Easter, so <laughs> we can probably tell them nearer the date. <laughs> I, I would imagine being sensible, it will be after Easter weekend. Yes, I would have thought yeah. so, yes. So I'll say that for now and okay. we'll check for it's next time. It's around Easter at any rate, isn't it? It's yes. a few weeks away still, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, so you might win yourself. It's a really rather nice uh, chocolate Easter egg. Um, now, that's kind of on the events side of things. Now, just a couple of little, three little things that I thought might be of interest. Um, one is that I've been uh, talking to Jeff, who does a lot of DIY work for us here, and to the allotment gardeners, Jenny and Mark in particular, and we have it in mind that we want to replace all the garden handrails in the garden at the centre. Mm -hmm. So... If you've been to one of our events in the warmer weather, you might be aware of the handrails that run around the edge of the lawn in particular and along the pathways, obviously designed to guide as much as to support anyone that might need a bit of extra mobility assistance, but also there to make sure people are aware of where the edges are of lawns and hedges and all sorts of things. Um, so we are looking into the costings for that right at the minute. Can I ask why? I mean, just a simple question. Uh, well, the ones we've got now are old oh, right, and they're okay. rotting. Right, okay. And they have been painted and repainted many, many times. The paint's holding together now, is it? It has pretty much got <laughs> to that stage, yes. So we, right. there's quite a few where they're pretty much crumbling away. Yeah. Um, the metal supports for the wood are still in quite good nick, mm -hmm. so we're hoping we can just replace the, the wooden handrails themselves. Um, we're still talking about the detail of what they'll be like, but it'll pretty much be the same as we've got now. Um, but if you have an opinion about the handrails in the garden, whether you've found them helpful or think there's something missing somewhere crucial, 
um, before we actually decide what we're going to do and actually get on with it, please let me know. Um, drop a drop an email, make a call to reception, or catch me when you can here at the centre, um, because I I would genuinely like to hear if anyone thinks we haven't got them in the right places, for example, yep. or the ones we've got aren't doing much for them. So that would be helpful. We've managed to get uh, £500 towards the cost of this that's from useful. Uh, the Percy Bilton Trust, I think it was. So that's very yeah. good, isn't it? Um, the second thing on, on my general list of things, um, again, you can talk to me more about this if you're interested, but I just wanted to mention there's a, re- a PhD research study going on at Warwick University, and they're looking into um, transport choices for people who... Um, might be disabled or for other reasons they might have particular transport needs is part of working towards the government's inclusive transport strategy apparently one of the goals of that strategy is that there should be equal access for, to all sorts of transport for disabled people by 2030 right that's a fairly specific goal and mm. not that far away i hadn't read up much on this and i'd be very interested to know you know, what they're targeting and what range of things they're going to be doing. But um, this particular research project is trying to start talking to people locally about what they think about access to transport. Mm. Um, So uh, I won't give you all the contact details, but again, if you are interested in knowing more or you'd like to uh, put yourself forward to be interviewed by them, talk to me, Joe, or ask in reception and we'll tell you more about it. And finally... um, Again, I'm afraid I'm a bit vague on the details because I haven't had them. I've, I've asked for them. But there is a, um, a recently completed project. The council have been renewing or refreshing or redoing information boards in the upper precinct uh-huh. in the city centre. And I think what they're doing is they are upgrading the information boards about the local history of the area and the architecture. Right. So obviously some of the boards are talking about the architecture and the architect Donald Gibson in the 50s mm-hmm. and how Coventry City Centre was designed. And um, they got in touch with us a while ago because they wanted to include Braille. Yes. And they've also got some sort of audio facility. What I can't tell you is where the signs are. <laughs> I have asked the question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so if you happen upon them, or somebody guides you to them, you might want to try the Braille if you're a Brailler, uh, or, or the audio would be yes. interesting to know how that works. Yeah. Um, so somewhere in the upper precinct. Yep. It's a bit of a treasure hunt at the moment. Right. But when we know where they are, we'll let you know. Right. Um, yes, I think that's... Uh, oh, there's one last thing. The Springboard Festival, which is at the Criterion Theatre. I'm pretty sure Hugh's been mentioning that. Uh, this is going to happen in the last week of March, the Tuesday the 28th. Not far uh, off now. No, Pardon? not far off, less than no, two weeks actually away. it's two yeah. weeks, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, two weeks yesterday. Doesn't, doesn't time fly? Yeah. Um, so, as I understand it, this is going to be a number of different locally-based community groups taking part in a, uh, a, a festival of reading and plays, um, a created writing group from here is yes. going to be part of it. Good. So, if you'd like to attend that, it'll be... Um, sort of evening where all the different groups produce their work and actors are going to be on stage performing mm-hmm. some of the creative writing. Uh, so tickets are £12.50 and you can ask in reception and we'll add you to the list for that. 
and trot as well as, as usual, presumably. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So, yes, I think that's my news for well, the centre this week. Tends to be going on with for the time being, I think. Good. Yes, Good. we're all looking forward to spring. Yes, aren't we just? Aren't we just, yes. Yes. Now it's gone wet and cold again, but, you know. It's got quite chilly again, hasn't it? Yes. There's a little bit of ice on the ground. Mild tomorrow, apparently. When do the clocks change? Ah, I think spring forward. They spring... F- they go forward at the end it's of March. It's not date. I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Not long, it, is it? It's not long. I mean, we've got the we've got the solst- the uh, equinox next week. On oh, yeah, twenty first. The equinox, isn't it? Okay. Twelve hour day, twelve hour night. Oh right, yes, yes. yes. So it's getting. And that's the official start of so. spring, isn't it? Yeah. The official start of spring. We just need it to get a bit milder now, don't we? Yes. But I think we're having more of a wintry spring weather now, yeah. rather than this funny, yeah. very hot and very cold. It's, yeah. it's wet and damp and you know, know. everything. However, um, yes, we'll tell you more. On that note of yes. hot and cold, I should mention that Heather's not in next week in reception. She's going some on holiday to Good hotter her. climbs for a week. Good so for her. She yeah. won't be uh, getting the right. cross that we are. Someone will be there then. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. Good. Okay, well, thank you, Joe. You're very welcome. We'll Thanks see very you, much. you and or Hugh next week. Will do. Thank you. And now it is time to go over to sport, and here's, as usual, is Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to Sport with Sarah. Now, it's been a very strange week this week for sport because most days, certainly for the last four or five days, sport has been the headline on the main news, but not actually sport itself, but rather the saga of Gary Lineker being suspended by the BBC and then seemingly latest report I've heard being allowed back in. Anyway, it's been well documented. Make of it what you wish. I have a very strong opinion, but I didn't give it because I don't want to breach my constitution of the talking newspaper and become like Gary. Anyway, I'm going to start off with Rugger because the rugby match did actually kick off before the football on Saturday. I think they did it so that the fans could get home and watch England play France. Mind you, I bet they wish they hadn't because the score ended up England 10, France 53. Oh. Anyway, going back to the main match... Coventry travelled down to Cornwall to play, you know, our arch-rivals, the Cornish Pirates, and led for the vast majority of the match. This was so frustrating, because when one of our players was sin-binned, where he has to go off the pitch for ten minutes, the Pirates absolutely capitalised, and those pesky Pirates ran out, 31-26 winners. Oh dear, Cov, what a terrible journey back. It's a long drive back from Cornwall and I hope you weren't listening to the England match. Anyway, going on to the round ball, Coventry City played Hull City at the CBS Arena. Now Hull scored first and... Sort of, we weren't exactly giving up hope, 
but it was looking as if, you know, they were going to swing it. And it was so annoying because it was against the run of play. But then up steps Matthew Gordon and he scored his fifth of the season, which isn't a bad result for him, five, because he hasn't been back from injury very long. This was halfway through the second half and it remained 1-1. Coventry are currently 10th, but just to show how close that position, the positioning is in our league, as I said before, we went into the match in 8th, by drawing we dropped to 9th, but then as a result of games elsewhere later on, we are now 10th. Hey ho. Now, Leamington took on Chester, and I'm afraid it was a nil-nil draw, but at least they're now just above the relegation zone. So, come on, ye brakes. Come on, take them off the brakes, that is. Anyway, Nuneaton's game was called off due to the bad weather. However, in the same division as Nuneaton, but the opposite end, I'm afraid, they're down towards the bottom. Stratford did at least draw away at Leiston, one goal apiece. Now, pride of place in our really minnow clubs goes to Atherston, who were playing in the last 16 of the FA Vars. And again, it was so frustrating. They scored first, then Atherston pegged it back, and then at final score, it was 2-2. And it went to penalties, which unfortunately, Atherston lost 4-3. Never mind, Atherston, you did very well. And I mentioned to a friend of mine who lives near to Atherston, about the football club and she said but they're a small place they can't possibly have a football club well they have and they did pretty damn well now in the conference I only have two results well one really to bring you Racing Club Warwick lost away three goals to one whilst Coventry United who were due to be away to Desborough Town. Their match was postponed due to a pitch inspection one hour before play. Oh well, I bet their women wish their match had been postponed as well because on Sunday, Coventry United women travelled all the way up north to Sunderland and lost three goals to nil. Now moving on to the wider sporting world, and sadly, well, not sadly, really, but there is a world beyond football. I'll start with tennis. It's the Indian Wells Open. Now, Indian Wells, I've told you before, is regarded pretty much as the fifth of the Masters series, along with Wimbledon, Australia, the French and the US Opens. So it's a pretty big tournament. Now, at the time of recording, which is Monday this week, Emma Raducanu, 
Jack Draper and Sir Andy Murray are all through to the third round, whilst Cameron Norrie played last night and is through to the fourth round, despite losing the first set against his Japanese opponent. Now, I owe Mus Radicano a big apology, because, as you know, I'm not a great fan of hers. But I did say that when she got the wild card to the first round, oh, well, at least she was guaranteed she'd get to the first round, if no further. But she's doing well, and, of course, she's injured and she's been sick, but she's battling through it all, so... Well done, Emma. You're turning yourself round. Now for the cricket. I'm afraid the men put their pyjamas back on this week and played a T20 series. Well, they're halfway through, two-thirds of the way through it, against Bangladesh. But sadly, they lost the second test, T20, which means they're guaranteed to lose the three-match series. Hey-ho. Now, in case you're getting a bit confused about, wow, these cricketers must be really fit, one minute they're in Pakistan or New Zealand playing a serious test match, then they're flying out to Bangladesh and playing a T20. No. Gone are the days when the bulk of the team would be the same players and you just have one or two specialists brought in. They are now pretty much separate teams. So you'll have an England one-day team and an England test match team. Hmm. And finally, now I hope this makes you smile. It sort of made me smile when I saw a headline on the BBC website. Great Britain returned to the international scene playing in a qualifier for the World Cup against Germany. Now, they actually lost the qualifier 15-14. But the sport? Water polo. Yes, I'm sure we have lots of local water polo teams. Anyway, water polo, to be honest, doesn't really float my boat. But there again, if I was in a boat, I think I'd be disqualified. Anyway, on that point, I will love you and leave you and see you all next week when hopefully there's a bit more sport rather than talk about sport. Bye. Whoa, 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 whoa there, Lewis. Listeners, you're not escaping to postbag yet because I wanted to bring you an update on the tennis. And I realise this is only an update of what happened overnight on Monday. And by now, both players I'm going to mention are probably well and truly beaten and on their way home. I owe a huge, huge, huge apology for doubting Emma Raducanu. For the first time since she won the US Open, she has beaten a top 20 ranked player, namely the 13 ranked and seeded 
Beatrice Haddad Maria. And she has now made the fourth round, i.e. the last 16 of the Indian Wells. And this, as I said before, is despite feeling very groggy before her first match last week, not training as a result for two days. And when she does go on the training court, she still has her wrist bandaged. And the second tennis update I wanted to give you is that I mentioned that Jack Draper and Sir Andy Murray were two of the remaining Brits in the third round. But what I didn't realise was they were actually playing each other last night. Now, to put this in perspective, there is 14 years difference between the two of them which is quite a lot pretty much in tennis. In fact, they did say that when, Jack Dra- when Andy Murray won his first Grand Slam, Jack Draper was seven, which really puts it, you know, into perspective. Um, anyway, it was a victory for Draper at six foot five. I wish I'm five foot. Over, over Sir Andy in two straight sets. And now, listeners, you can escape to your post bag. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. And, of course, after Sarah, as usual again, we go into post bag. And again, as usual, it's Dave with your post bag. Hello and welcome to your post bag. Sarah has top billing this week and she's replying to Bob Syme by talking about her favourite radio stations. Hi, it's Sarah here again. Now, I'm just replying to Bob Symes' great article, and hopefully one that will kick off a debate, about radio stations. Now, I may be 50 many, but I still wake up and love free radio. It has to be free radio for me in the morning. I do like the breakfast combo. I think they're really good. But then, on the whole, during the day, I just have CWR on, but I don't actually tend to sit down and listen to it, other than the quizzes. It's just kind of on as a bit of background noise. But if there's any sport on, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm there, Radio 5, Radio 5 Extra, or Talk Sport. But then... If I've turned the television off and I've got a few minutes before I go to bed, for me it has to be classic FM. It's not as sort of serious and heavy as as Radio 3. And it's got a lot of the classics that we sort of love, we grew up with, and they're quite popular classics. So if you're looking for another radio station to try, ask your smart speaker (coughs) to play... Classic FM. Thoroughly recommend it. Oh, yeah, and thanks, Sue, for that great article. I do also now occasionally listen to Boom, but I have to be in the right mood. Okay, bye for now. Well, I switched on local BBC radio about 5am before CWR started at 6. We were asked, what was the first big word we learnt? I said, judicious. 
I used to listen to an advert for washing up liquid where they sang the jingle Now hands that judicious can feel soft as your face Looking it up after that program I learnt that it meant making a decision with good judgment i.e. a government spokesman said they made judicious use of public funds I learnt the word osmosis meaning learning from someone who is interested in the subject from Michael Aspel when I interviewed him when he was hosting the Antiques Roadshow in the old Coventry Cathedral ruins. Of all the years you've been doing the Antiques Roadshow, how do you become a bit of an, an antiques expert yourself? I'll never be an expert. I won't live long enough. But uh, <laughs> by, by kind of osmosis you begin to understand the language of the experts and you begin to see things that you like. Art Deco for me, that's my favourite. Well, tell us what the first big word you learnt, or, or have learnt later on in life. I've learnt a lot of things by osmosis from Julia's reports. Here's the latest. It's a dog's life. Wendy the warden came with me to the Gateway Club, and we met a retired policeman and woman. They had retired dogs too, and they were sniffer dogs and they could find drugs, money, phones, bodies and guns. They didn't find any at the Gateway Club though, we had them all well hidden before they arrived. My friend Jean said he wishes he had that dog because he could do with some drugs, money, phones, bodies and guns. They brought a little Cocker Spaniel too, and his ball, and he found it every time. He was very clever, but he didn't find any drugs, money, phones, bodies or guns though. His name was Dustin, and I stroked him, and he was only eight months old, but my friend John said that he is only eight months old too, if you measure him in dog years, and he couldn't find anything if you paid him. Wendy said I was very brave for stroking him. Yeah. Dustin, that is. I didn't stroke my friend John. Julia. Well, Julia, would you stroke a horse, though, or even ride it? Margaret's article about uh, one of Coventry's heritage buildings on the Tamworth Road brought back memories of horse riding for Bob Syme. Hello. I was interested in the story about the Old Hall Hotel on the Tamworth Road that Margaret covered. I live about 200 yards actually from the Old Hall Hotel, but I could tell you some stories about that. I used to keep my horse there, Diamond, in the stables that Margaret was mentioning. Lady MacDonald used to keep the hall there, and she had two great Danes, one called Chota and one called Penny. Many years ago, this is and uh, I broke Diamond in there and then moved him into Nightingale's fields for the, that's the farm in Sampit's Lane which is now the Beechwood Hotel and the fields is now Cardinal Newman School I had three horses then called Ricky then Diamond, the stallion and Rennie, my racehorse so I rode horses all, the, all my life and I always used the old hall uh, Mrs. MacDonald said to me one day, I don't know what's wrong with your horse. I've just given him three slices of beef from the chef. And he just walked away and turned his nose up at it. I said, yes, that's because he's a vegetarian. <laughs> I had to smile about that one. But when it changed actually into, from 
the hotel to a Bernie house. It was a steakhouse. My cousin, Duncan Amos, he was the manager of it then for several years. And I'm still riding horses. I've rode all my life. I rode horse. The last time was Jake, a big grey, and my friend's daughter's horse. Uh, last, a year last September, and I went to Gifts Galore up at the Old Park and seen Mary and had the photos put on four mugs, two with me riding Jake and two with his face against my face. And before that, I was riding in Wales. But it's, I used the old hall for years ago until it closed, and then it was, I haven't been back since it's recently reopened. There's some tons of stories I could tell you all about that and about Nightingale's Farm, which is, I say, the Beechwood Hotel. Bob Simon, take care. Thank you, Bob. You did do a report with Nigel entitled Bob Goes Horse Riding, but you didn't get to actually ride it. You could do a report on a horse if you wore a lapel mic, which I used to report from a bicycle with Graham. It was very good to hear Bob Syme on last week's postbag, said John. It took me right back to the days of my youth. I've often wondered what happened to him. My youth, that is. Not Bob. I've kept tabs on him via postbag. In those days, we only had four computers at the resource centre. Bob and Jackson brought back many memories. I think Jason Fowler, Melanie Pritchard, Eric Selby, Eric Stace and a lady called Robin were all in the same class. Perhaps not at all the same time, when you're 197 years old, it's uh, hard to keep items separate in what passes from my mind these days. Same with anecdotes. Bob always had plenty to keep us entertained. One was his description of a shopping trip in those days, on bin days. He said that the trip back was like a downhill ski salon because Jackson was weaving between bins while Bob was hanging on to his harness for dear life. And I think it was Jackson who refused to leave the house if it was raining unless he heard Bob had run for a cab. I think that was right. Mind you, there has been a bit of Irish whiskey down my neck since then, so I may have got my stories a bit mixed up. I know that good old Pat and Denise seem to take it in turns to run the reception, and the lovely Jill Lane organised us all, and Trisha still made the cakes. It was good to hear from you, Bob, and thanks for your kind words. I'm not sure who that brilliant computer tutor was, who you were talking about, but I wish I could meet him now. I want to be just like him when I grow up. I'll write again in another 20 years, John. Thank you, John, and also, Bob, for encouraging such great responses in Postbag. So ring up the resource centre to book a session to give the one-to-one -one computer lessons a try. You'd be surprised what they can do for you. A Persian proverb once said, Give instructions unto a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. So what's your favourite saying? Graham's favourite media for reading and writing is something I learned once to help 
pupils at Exel Grange School, and that's Braille. Regarding the petition to get more Braille um, on packaging, I would certainly endorse that idea. We already have Braille on um, medication containers, uh, which I find a godsend. But there are those among us who say, well, Braille's a minority thing, can't we have raised printed letters, raised sighted letters? I would suggest not. One of the reasons given for people not making an effort to learn Braille is that they don't have any feel in their fingers to be able to read it. And if they, can, if they have a problem in reading Braille, then they're certainly going to have a problem in reading raised sighted letters. I read Braille and I'm familiar with sighted letters, but I have a problem with raised letters, raised sighted letters on packaging, particularly if the surface is smooth, like a smooth plastic material. Um, it's just unidentifiable as far as I'm concerned. And it is yet another good reason for making an effort to learn Braille, which I would certainly recommend anybody to do. Thank you, Graham. Hugh talked recently about Amy's book, Renaissance, being available from Waterstones. Here she is to tell you herself. I understand you've had uh, your poetry book in Waterstones. Yes, it's now in Waterstones online, so anyone that goes into wa any Waterstones in the country, and if they ask them about my book, Renaissance, they should look it up and be able to order it for you. And it's also available when you go into Warwick Books as well. That's not online. Anyhow, you can get, get the physical book from Waterstones. So, well done to Amy. And remember, you can buy a poetry book, Renaissance by Amy Clonell, from Coventry Resource Centre. Thank you for your messages this week. Please keep the interest going. You know that phone number. Ring the Resource Centre on 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leave a message. So keep the interest going. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Join me next time. Bye for now. Another week, uh, another postbag and thanks to Dave. Margaret now continues her tour of Coventry's buildings of significant architectural style and I think everyone knows that both the former Jaguar Browns Lane site and the company's former Daimler Radford plant have uh, both been developed as housing estates but it's the Daimler building that Margaret describes. The site of Sandy Lane in Radford is the birthplace of the British motor industry. The old cotton mill, later known as Motor Mills, was acquired by the Great Horseless Carriage Company and Daimler Company to manufacture motor cars in 1896. Francis Barron, works manager of the GHCC, wrote, In 1897, at the Motor Mills, Coventry, I built the first petrol motor cars in England. One of the first of the cars went to Lord Ivy for the Duke of York, later George V. 
This vehicle was completed at least one or two months before the first Daimler came off the production line. By the 1920s, the GHCC had moved on and Daimler filled the entire site down to the canal. Daimler occupied motor mills until 1937. Up until 1940, the old site was used as an air ministry store. Both sites received direct hits during the Blitz and there was a great deal of damage except for on the office block and the powerhouse. The powerhouse stands alongside the canal. The Daimler offices built in 1903 and which face Sandy Lane are the only visible reminder of the famed company and are still in use. We are now well into March, of course, with many signs that spring is just around the corner. Snowdrops and daffodils and crocuses are in their colourful flower. Last month, you'll remember that Stella talked about February, and now she's here again to talk now about this month, March. March gets its name from Mars, the Roman god of war. An apt description when we consider the rough and boisterous windy weather which often characterises the month. We also use images of animals when referring to it, saying that if it begins, that is, comes in like a lion, it should go out like a lamb, or vice versa, of course. Poets talk of the winds as stirring the dancing daffodils, to my mind the loveliest of all flowers, with their bright trumpets heralding the spring. Many of them are sported by Welsh folk on St David's Day, the first of the month. They became recognised as the national emblem of Wales only in the 20th century, as an alternative to the leek, which some people considered too vulgar. Another name for the daffodil is the Lent lily, and according to legend they were once white. Proserpina, a young girl fancied by Pluto, god of the underworld, falls asleep in a meadow, wearing a wreath of the flowers. The god carries her off to his domain, and the lilies fall from her head, turning a golden yellow. O Proserpina, for the flowers that frightened thy us fall from Pluto's wagon, daffodils that come before the swallow dares, and take the winds of March with beauty. That's Shakespeare. And everyone knows William Wordsworth's host of golden daffodils, but what they may not know is that he pinched the description from his sister Dorothy's journal, written in 1802 at Grasmere. When we were in the woods beyond Gowbarrow Park, we saw a few daffodils close to the waterside. But as we went along, there were more and yet more, and at last under the boughs of the trees, we saw a long belt of them along the shore, about the breadth of a country turnpike road. I never saw daffodils so beautiful. They grew among the mossy stones about and beyond them. Some rested their heads upon these stones, as on pillows for weariness, and the rest tossed and reeled and danced, and seemed as if they verily laughed with the wind that blew upon them over the lake. As well as St David's Day on the 1st, there's St Patrick's Day on the 17th, 
celebrated by the many Irish people living in Coventry, as well as others who don't need much excuse for a party. They may well be dressed in green and wearing a shamrock in a buttonhole. Another symbol is an Irish harp, the one I view on my glass when I enjoy the occasional glass of Guinness. Then comes Mothering Sunday, this year on the 19th. It marks the middle of Lent, when mothering or simnel cakes used to be eaten, especially in Lancashire, in memory of the feeding of the 5,000. A bunch of violets is the day's emblem, and we, of course, observe the custom of giving presents and nowadays cards to our mothers. The idea is said to have grown out of the practice of visiting the mother church on this day, which meant that children went home to spend it with their parents, especially if they were away at school or in service. The expression Mother's Day comes from the USA, and there it's observed on the second Sunday in May. I must admit I prefer the name Mothering Sunday, but over the years found it increasingly difficult to find cards with this on. Other March dates? Well, perhaps the most famous in history is the Ides of March, the 15th, when, as predicted by fortune tellers at the time, Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Roman Forum by a group of Republican conspirators who thought he was about to declare himself emperor. I once went on a short break holiday to Rome and actually stood in the Forum ruins on the Ides of March, imagining Caesar's ghost still haunting the scene. By the end of the month we're enjoying lighter evenings, helped on by the putting forward of clocks, and hopefully those lamb-like days which mark the beginning of spring. The sun getting into the dark corners of our lives sparks off the urge to spring clean in some. My grandmother was contemptuous of such behaviour, retorting that only dirty people needed to make this special effort. Others kept up a constant battle for cleanliness, whatever the season. I've certainly done some major symbolic spring cleaning of my life at this time of year, once deciding on a complete change of career, and another march moving to a new property. As for literally sprucing up the house, I'm a bit like Mole in The Wind in the Willows, who starts off with good intentions, then throws down his duster and paintbrush, saying, Hang spring cleaning, and goes out into the warm sunshine. And of course we'll soon be welcoming primroses, followed shortly after that by daffodil, uh, by bluebells rather. Not only is our new king shortly to be crowned in May, but also his image will start to appear on our currency and postage stamps. It's the stamps that Sheila tells us what we might be expecting from an article by Robert Hardman in the Daily Mail. For nearly two centuries, it has been a rite of passage for successive British monarchs, along with coins, a crown and scepter. Today, it is the turn of Charles III. The King's first postage stamp was revealed last week. To be precise, this is his first definitive, the regular stamp in constant circulation, the one that stuck to most of the things we receive or send each day. Initially, the king will be available in the same four colours as those used by the late queen at the end of her reign, plum purple for first class, marine turquoise for first class large, 
holly green for second class and pine green for second class large. However, as Latterlist will spot immediately, there is one intriguing difference between Charles III and every other monarch going back to the first definitive, Queen Victoria's penny black. For Charles III appears with no crown or diadem. It is, we are told, the personal choice of the king himself. All the others have featured some sort of regalia. Even Edward VIII, who appeared on his short-lived run of stumps with a bare head, though he was never actually crowned, had an image of the crown in his frame. Elizabeth II, like Victoria, wore a diadem on hers. Insomuch as a stump can convey intimacy, the crown as Charles III design certainly lends the new stump a more human touch. The stamps go on general sale on April the 4th, but in order to avoid undue waste, retailers will continue to sell Elizabeth II definitives until they run out. The Royal Mail says these can be used indefinitely as long as they carry the barcode down the side. Without any without must be traded in by July the 31st or they will be invalid. The King's stamp features an adapted version of his new portrait by Martin Jennings, which was created for the obverse of the new Charles III coinage. Unlike Elizabeth II, the King will face the same way on both his stamps and coins. The late Queen faced left on stamps and right on coins because monarchs alternate the direction of their profile on coins with each successive reign. Her son therefore reverts to looking left on coins. However, all monarchs look to the left on their stamps. This, the decision was taken by Edward VII, who thought it would look peculiar for the monarch to face away from the contents of a letter. Britain is the only country on earth which can use its head of state as its postal identity. Everywhere else, from the US to the tiniest Pacific island, must apply its name. The British exemption is down to Roland Hill, the man who invented the postage stamp. Until then, recipients paid for post and the cost was calculated according to the mileage travelled and the size of the letter being delivered. Hill's idea of offering an adhesive stamp for a penny, the penny black, in return for nationwide delivery was revolutionary. Placing the monarch's face on the front, it was argued, also made it much harder to forge and so the tradition stuck. What modern letter writers may find most astonishing is that the one penny fee remained unchanged throughout the reigns of Victoria and Edward VII. Nor was there any demarcation. What we now call first class next day delivery was simply standard delivery. Astonishingly, the price stayed the same for 76 years. It was only under George V in the midst of World War I that the price for a letter went up to a penny halfpence. Still, a letter posted anywhere in Britain would reach a soldier on the Western Front a day later. Compare that with the degree of postal inflation during the reign of Elizabeth II. In 1952, a standard stamp cost two and a half pence. By the time the post office invented first and second class stamps in 1968, the prices were respectively five and four pence. Today, that same letter costs 95 pence for first class. And as for second-class postage, some people are still waiting for their Christmas cards. It should, however, be pointed out that the Royal Mail's regulator, Ofcom, imposes some of the toughest delivery targets anywhere in the world. In 2003-04, the Royal Mail set an all-time postal record when it handled more than 20 billion items. 
but the dawn of email has had a catastrophic impact, reducing that number to 8 billion, and that was before the postal strikes. If the trend continues, the postage stamp will be little more than a collector's curio by the time Prince George's image ends up on an envelope. Although the King's new stamps are not on sale yet, they are on display in the Postal Museum at Clerkenwell in London. The penny black, the most famous stamp, was not used for very long. All stamps needed to be cancelled after use, hence the postmark. The Victorian postmasters soon found that black ink did not show up well on a black stamp, so they began printing the same stamps in red. Over the years, definitives have changed colour for many reasons, not least price hikes and attempts to reduce forgery. No reign saw as much positive innovation as the last one. The late Queen presided over a major change in style with the introduction of bold new commemorative stamps honouring everything from pop music and trains to wildlife. These versions remain exceedingly popular with collectors. Unlike her predecessors, the Queen also changed her portrait mid-reign. In the early years, the post-orange image was based on a stunning 1952 photograph by Dorothy Wilding. However, stamp designers find it unwieldy, and in 1967, the Queen approved a new base-relief portrait by the sculptor Arnold Machin. It is still regarded as a masterpiece. It is one of the most reproduced images in history, reprinted more than 300 billion times. So we can expect new stamps as soon as the socks of Elizabeth II stamps are all being used and then we might see the first of the new coinage with the king's head facing the opposite way to his mother's which of course is the tradition. I'm sure everyone is familiar with just William, the books of course and the stories of the mischievous schoolboy and his nemesis, Vardis Elizabeth by Richard Compton uh, which have now turned a hundred years this year. Dominic Bliss investigates why they still continue to amuse us in this first part, this first article, in a, a part two uh, article by Sue, the next one next week. Scruffy, mischievous and largely inscrutable, at least as far as adults are concerned, William Brown is one of the best known and most cherished characters in children's literature. Created by novelist Richmore Crompton, he made his debut a hundred years ago when her first Just William book was published in 1922. Over the following century, he has remained a perennial favourite, the star of no fewer than 38 books, later translated into dozens of foreign languages, as well as countless films, TV series, radio shows and plays. In the English language alone, more than 12 million of the Just William books have sold. But how on earth did this scampish schoolboy, with his loyal group of friends, the Outlaws, and their uproarious es escapades, become so popular? Jane McVeigh, whose recent biography of the author has been published to celebrate the 100th anniversary, says, William is an ageless character. He's been described as a sort of everyman. He can speak to all of us, because we look at the adult world through his 11-year-old eyes and we see people for how they really are. I think that really touched a nerve with Compton's readers. One of William's key character traits was his rebelliousness. 
In the stories Crompton wrote all the way up until her death, aged 78, in 1969, the schoolboy was always getting caught up in all sorts of scrapes. There was the time he pinched his brother's bicycle and skidded out of control all over the family picnic or when he decided to lock the family cook in the coal cellar so he could raid the larder and invite his friends round for a house party, or the sanctuary he opened for the protection of rats. On one occasion he and the outlaws kidnapped a baby and left it in the charge of a cow. On another he broke into a house only to discover another more serious burglar at work. Inevitably, anything William turns his hand to, often with the best intentions, results in total mayhem. Also inevitably, he almost always comes out on top. Having first appeared in the 1920s, he is the original mischievous school kid, an inspiration for all sorts of fictitious rascals, ranging from Dennis the Menace and Minnie the Minx to Pippi Longstocking, Bart Simpson and Horrid Henry. McVeigh says William's rebel behaviour is key to his appeal. He does things all of us wish we could have done, but know we wouldn't have been brave enough to do it. And he does it all with a certain innocence, not always understanding the implications of what he's doing. William Brown lives in an unnamed, fictitious village in the home counties, with his long-suffering parents and older siblings, Ethel and Robert. When he's not dressed up as a pirate, a robber or a lion tamer, he typically sports dishevelled school uniform, scuffed shoes, tousled hair and a grubby face. His speech and writing are peppered with mispronunciations, malapropisms, bad spelling and dropped consonants. In one story, William hangs a sign on his snoring Aunt Emily's bed, stating that she is a fat wild woman talking native language. In another, he pretends his mother's fox fur is a bear shot by outlaws in Russia. At one point, the outlaws decide their needs ought to be enshrined in law, so they draw up their Magna Carta, with six demands for the government. 1. As much holidays as term. 2. No afternoon school. 3. Sixpence a week pocket money and not to be took off. 4. No Latin, no French, no arithmetic. 5. As much ice cream and bananas and cream buns as we like free. And six, no punishments and stay up as late as we like. The nostalgic interwar upper middle class world William initially inhabits is one of village fates, servants, amateur dramatics, dusty school classrooms, well stocked sweet shops, conquer fights and high teas. As well as his fellow outlaws, Ginger, Henry and Douglas, recurring characters include Joan, for whom William has a soft spot, various strict teachers, doctors and a procession of elderly aunts and male cousins. The outlaws face a regular nemesis in a rival gang called the Hubert Lanites, led by the spoiled Hubert Lane, Hubie to his loving mother. 
There's also William's pet mongrel dog, Jumble, with fox terrier ears, retriever nose, collie tail, and slightly dachshund body aquiver with the joy of life. Aside from William, perhaps the most memorable character of all is Violet Elizabeth Bott the lisping, spoilt, six-year-old daughter of the local self-made millionaire, who famously warns, I'll scream and scream till I make myself sick, and I can. Crompton described Violet's vocals as a scream that would have put a factory siren to shame, and which was guaranteed to reduce anyone within ten yards of it to quite an expensive nervous breakdown. In the 1970s television adaptation, William's nemesis was famously played by young Bonnie Langford. And as I said, Sue will conclude this article about just William in next week's Outlook. How many of you remember the Black Prince pub, the historic building reduced to rubble? Keith recalls it in this article from the February edition of the Earlston Echo. The long-anticipated demolition of the former Black Horse pub finally took place over the weekend of 7th and 8th January. The building dated back to at least 1800, some claim up to 50 years earlier, and was a distinctive feature of the Spon End street scene that was familiar to many generations of local people. As previously reported, the demolition was a critical element of the air quality plan proposal to create a fourth lane through Sponend Butts Road. Coventry City Council has advanced various plans to widen the road to two lanes each way between the Black Horse and Windsor Street. The first of these was reported by Echo 34 years ago. The popularity of the pub up to its closure in 2012 and its listed interior have saved the building until now, but with the pub closed for more than 12 years and converted to residential use, in the process losing the very features that merited listed status, the will of the council and the priority given to air quality have finally prevailed. It is probably fair to say that the majority opinion among local people, is that the building should still have been preserved because it is part of Sponend's heritage, irrespective of its decline and recent use. Indeed, some might argue that its use for housing was as important as for licensed premises, or perhaps even more so. Others suggest that it is no great loss, as its heyday as a much-loved local was long gone. For its part, the council has argued that they had no choice, given that central government could have imposed a highly undesirable congestion charge zone on a much wider area of Coventry, unless there was an alternative way to reduce pollution levels on Hollyhead Road, the city's black spot. Whilst that much is undeniable, nonetheless there is widespread scepticism as to whether levelling traffic flows between the two main arterial routes from the west side of the city by offering drivers a quicker journey on the B4106 corridor is the best solution. Ultimately, drivers cannot be forced to use a route they don't want to use, particularly if there are more direct options from their starting point, 
and it will take some very persuasive and very precise guidance and publicity to change long-established habits to just the degree required to even up the pollution levels between the two routes, such that both fall under the legal limit consistently. Whatever the merits of these various arguments for and against the Council's actions, the deed is now done. Councillor Bally Singh is looking at ways to preserve the heritage of the Black Horse site. Among suggestions are saving bricks from the demolition for a wall, incorporating planters, with a small plaque highlighting the connection to the Black Horse, and also a footpath. Bally is keen for the public to make further suggestions. The council has instructed the contractor to retain 200 bricks to help provide whatever memorial is agreed upon. Meanwhile, other works continue on the Spon End scheme, and the timetable for completion has been extended by around three months to the summer of this year. A council officer asked to comment on the delay told Echo, There have been a number of challenges regarding the delivery of the scheme, such as multiple utilities that need to be coordinated, and in many cases uncharted utility service apparatus. As a result, the current proposed completion date is summer 2023. Also, the acquisition of the Black Horse took longer than originally programmed. It appears that the council at this stage are unable or unwilling to provide an itemised timeline for the remaining work, but it is worth recording that some key points, such as the opening of the new petrol station, and much of the road surface work to the east of the railway arches, have already been ticked off the list. Now that the black horse has gone, we can expect to see work progress at the western end, including opening up another arch and work on remodelling the junction to and from the arch's industrial estate. Another of, unfortunately, the numerous pubs which are closing every year. It seems unlikely that a visually impaired person might take up photography, but that's exactly what Rachel Andrews did as a hobby to keep an eye on her pet rats. Rachel was only in her 20s when she started losing her sight, and also when uh, she had her first pet rodents. Growing up pathologically myopic, Rachel Andrews knew nothing else apart from her thick bottle-bottomed glasses for which she was teased. There was so much that she simply couldn't do, and when she developed macular degeneration, losing all the sight in her left eye at 21, followed shortly afterwards by almost all the sight in her right, her life seemed to fall apart. That was until she discovered she could use her limited peripheral vision, combined with the latest camera technology, to create the unthinkable. Beautiful photographs which would be admired by all who saw them. It seems quite strange, but I will never really see the images I take, says Rachel, who's now 50. I get an impression out of the side of my eye, but that is all. However, the first time I saw what was possible, the world seemed to come alive. When I take my photographs, everything slows down, and I am overtaken by this incredible sense of calm. What I do brings me joy beyond words. When Rachel lost the sight in her left eye, 
She was working as a DJ and at a ten-pin bowling alley, but she just got on with that. She then became a bingo caller and cashier a year or two later, while still DJing, before she lost the vision in the centre of her right eye. This terrible event was devastating, and the years that followed were a difficult time for her. I simply put my head down to dry my hair, and when I lifted it up to look in the mirror, in that second, the middle vision had gone, she says. No one seemed to know what was happening. I went off work sick and gave up my driving licence, but my eyesight never returned, plunging me into depression. I have to say, I spent ten years just kind of lost, she continues. While being trained to use a long cane, some cruel children tried to push me into the road, which sadly put me off ever trying again. Rachel didn't know it at the time, but a digital camera bought for her in the early 90s to check her pet rats for health problems held the key to an amazing future. This was unlocked when she met her husband Darrell through the charity Vision Norfolk. For many years I did nothing. I tried to volunteer in a sighted world and felt so isolated, she explains. This all changed in 2006 when I was able to use my love of music and creative talents as part of a house band for a social club for sight-impaired people. Daryl, although completely blind, without even light perception, was a guitarist. I was a keyboard player and singer, producing backing tracks for cover versions of songs. I remember my first impression of Daryl, Rachel laughs. He had a lovely guide dog, a labradoodle called Otto. He also smelt nice, and I could just see the genes of a rock and roller. But it was Otto who attracted me the most. Daryl and Rachel got engaged two months after meeting and married in 2012 on Rachel's 40th birthday. Today they are a very happy family with Rachel's retired guide dog Stella, her current guide dog AJ and Daryl's Jackson. All the time though an interest in photography lingered in her subconscious until technological developments made Rachel aware of the opportunities available to her. A system called focus peaking began to become more widespread in specialised cameras as a way to do what Rachel can't, see if an image is in proper focus. I have a little side vision and respond in a nanosecond to the flash of colour, Rachel explains. I approach what I think might be a suitable subject that doesn't move, like flowers, fungi or feeding insects, and point the lens towards it. The parts which are in focus light up with a red outline like a lightning strike. The moment this happens, I push the shutter button and fire off shots. Rachel's talent has developed so much that she now shares her photos through her website, Soft of Sight Photography. She has learned to use her body to stabilise the camera and breathe and move very slowly and carefully towards the subject.
However, the revelation when she first cast her eye over her work and saw what she created, this is art, I thought, and the feeling of achievement was overwhelming. Alongside photography, I have my work as a disability rights campaigner, promoting the right of the visually impaired to vote, as well as championing all sorts of other issues. The couple use many aids at home, such as talking phones, scales and jugs, as well as other electronic devices. Rachel's dream is to go back to Fort William in Scotland, where she visited in her late twenties to trudge through the undergrowth in search of photographic opportunities. I initially felt hesitant sharing my love of photography with Daryl, as he cannot participate in it, but he often asks me to talk about what makes a great picture. Even though I never truly see my own photos, I wish to include sight-impaired people in my art, as I feel so strongly that they should derive pleasure from the creativity everyone assumes belongs to those who see. That uplifting story of a visually impaired photographer brings us to the end of this week's Outlook. But of course we'll be back with you next week. So with that it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewing.